This morning's passage is from Acts 19, verses 1 through 10. Please find it in your Bible and read along with me. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is Tim, and I have the privilege of opening up God's word for us this morning. And hey, I just wanted to say uh, thank you so much for your prayers for us. We've seen God answer some pretty significant prayers for our family. And uh, moving time is upon us, and so we look forward to being there in the Evanston community soon. I am also very excited about uh, being able to celebrate communion as a church family together on October 11th. And so please circle that date on your calendar. You'll hear more of the logistics behind that in the weekly update as well as uh, from Danny. And so we would encourage you to prepare for communion uh, as we come together to celebrate all that Jesus has done for you and for me. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 19 if you haven't already? Thank you so much for that scripture reading. And we are in a series here called God's Gracious Gospel, exploring the birth of the church in Ephesus. The theme of the book of Acts as a whole is the unstoppable advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit through his faithful witnesses all according to the plan of God. And then the structure that we see in the book of Acts really surrounds Acts 1-8. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we find ourselves here in Acts 19 in that section dealing with the ends of the earth. The five aspects of gospel-centered disciple-making that we explored last week in Acts 18, 18 through 28 are these, deploying trained disciples, engaging potential disciples, strengthening established disciples, instructing uninformed disciples, and helping young disciples. Here now as we turn to Acts 19 verses 1 through 10, we're going to do an even deeper dive into what it means to engage potential disciples with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you this morning asking that you might quiet within us every voice but your own. Speak to us, O Lord, with your truth. Your word is truth. Inspire us, Lord, capture our imaginations with the birth of your church in Ephesus. God, with the conditions surrounding what took place there, would you help us to grasp the heights and depths of your great love for us? And Lord, would you use us to faithfully communicate your truth to others? Father, fill me in this time and use me to clearly proclaim your truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I think back to some of my early attempts at evangelism, and one story that comes to mind is when my eighth grade youth leader kind of took me under his wing, taught me the ropes of how to share my faith, and then took me to a local park to do just that. And I remember scanning the park and looking for just the right, the right victim. And there was this gentleman that was running around the lagoon. And so I set my sights on him. The youth leader was like, are you sure? And I was like, I was convinced, yes. And I parked myself at the top of these stairs waiting for him to come around the bend to, to, to pounce upon him. And thankfully, when he came up those stairs, he was still kind of jogging in place. And I asked him two questions. I first asked him uh, <clears throat> if he were to die today, would he uh, have confidence that he were to go to heaven? And he said, yes, absolutely. And the second question I was supposed to ask was if you were standing before God and he asked, why should I let you in? What would you say? But instead it came out, well, why would he let you in? Not exactly the way I intended it, but thankfully this gentleman was a Baptist pastor and he encouraged me in that moment and shared how God had been at work in his life, drawing him to himself. It just was a good reminder to me that we are called to engage all types of people with the gospel and that not everyone is going to respond the same way. I remember my youth leader really helping me with that truth and not everyone is going to respond the same way. Some might accept the truth, some might reject the truth and it really was not up to us. It was ultimately up to God's spirit. But there are certainly parallels with that, that notion and the parable of the soils, that we are not to go about judging who is going to be receptive to the gospel and who is not, but that we are to sow. We are to sow the seed broadly. Those who do respond to the gospel may just surprise us. And I don't know about you, but I can think back to situations in my life when there are people who, who surprisingly responded to the gospel that perhaps I had written off, perhaps I had thought was, was far from doing just that. Here in Acts 19, 1 through 10, though, we find the Apostle Paul engaging various types of potential disciples, from the religious to the hostile to the curious. And that's what we're going to spend our time looking at here this morning. Paul engaging these three different types of not yet disciples, these potential disciples. And so let's look at the first type, engaging potential disciples who are religious. Look at Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. What are we to make of this kind of peculiar story here at the beginning of Acts 19? We're first told how Apollos is watering and uh, those gospel seeds in Corinth, and during that time, Paul makes his way back to Ephesus. This would become the primary place of ministry for him during his third missionary journey, and it is where he would spend the longest time in any one location in the book of Acts. A little bit more about Ephesus, though. As, as our series goes on, we're going to learn more and more, but it was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. It was located in the most prosperous region, the most prosperous province. And it grew rapidly because of its strategic location along primary trade routes, not only by land, but by sea. There was an inscription that was found in Ephesus in the ruins that says, the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. I love that. The first and greatest metropolis of Asia. Uh, put that on a bumper sticker, I guess. It's not quite city of broad shoulders, but it has a certain ring to it, doesn't it? Well, Paul notices some disciples, as the text puts it here, and takes the time to ask them some discerning questions. He doesn't just leave them where they is, puzzled he may be, but he asks these discerning questions. He asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? To which they respond, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. The second question he then asks, springboarding off of that, is into what then were you baptized? And their response is into John's baptism. Who then are these disciples? Admittedly, this is something that has been debated for quite some time, but the evidence suggests that these are not yet true disciples of Jesus Christ. We might call them almost Christians, you know, close but no cigar. There are some, there's some they share some resemblance with Apollos in the previous chapter, but, but there's a key difference. Apollos taught accurately about Jesus and was fervent in the Spirit. In contrast, these met men here do not yet have God's Spirit. Over and over again in Scripture, we see that the Holy Spirit indwells true believers. In fact, we're going to see that especially in the book of Ephesians. Rather, these individuals seem to still be disciples of John the Baptist. Elsewhere, Luke uses the term disciples to refer to John's followers. They would have been familiar with the Spirit, perhaps through John's teaching, but what they seem to be lacking is a knowledge of how the Holy Spirit has been radically poured out at Pentecost. So Paul begins to fill in the gaps for them. He says, John baptized you with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. John's baptism was one of anticipation and preparation. John pointed to the one who had come after him. Remember what he said? Whose sandals he was unworthy to tie. And he pointed to Jesus. And these disciples had not yet been introduced to Jesus, nor did they truly believe in him yet. They were caught in a, what we might call a time of transition, needing a more robust or a more full-orbed understanding of who Jesus is and the gospel that he has given. John Stott writes, in a word, they were still living in the Old Testament, which culminated with John the Baptist. They understood neither that the New Age had been ushered in by Jesus, nor that those who believed in him and are baptized into him received the distinctive blessing of the New Age, the indwelling spirit. 
I'm reminded of a story about some colonists who left Virginia and settled far to the west. And 20 years later, a group of travelers came through and asked them what they thought of the New Republic and the Continental Congress. And they answered, we have not so much as heard of a Continental Congress or a Republic. They still thought of themselves as loyal subjects to the king and had not even heard of George Washington or the Revolutionary War. This is similar to where these 12 men found themselves in this situation. And so Paul explains the gospel of the grace of God to them more accurately. And they believe in Jesus and are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and have the Holy Spirit come upon them. One side note is that this is the only case of people being re-baptized in the New Testament. And it seems to have taken place because their, their previous baptism was not Christian baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus. And to show that they had indeed received the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues and prophesy. You know, we first see speaking in tongues when the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. Tongues also appear as we go through the narrative in Acts when Cornelius comes to faith in Jesus Christ. But tongues do not accompany every instance of conversion in the book of Acts. What is the norm and the pattern that we see play out in the New Testament is repentance and faith, being receiving the Spirit at the time of conversion, and then professing faith visibly through baptism. It is important to remember that the book of Acts covers a transitional time within the church. There is no one set pattern for the signs surrounding the coming of the Spirit. But what is clear is that when someone trusts in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in their life. In this case, speaking in tongues and prophesying were then the visible and the public expressions that the Spirit had indeed come and taken up residence in their lives, the lives of these new believers. And so the way that Luke paints this scene, this episode plays out like a mini Pentecost for these individuals. As these 12 are brought up to speed and join this new band, this new community of disciples in Ephesus. Think about the families that these individuals represent as well and how they would then join this nucleus of faith and have a lasting impact. Well, while we might not, might not encounter modern-day disciples of John the Baptist, we are surrounded by what we might call religious types who, based on their understanding, think that they're good to go with God. But before thinking about and en engaging uh, potential disciples who are religious, let's first heed, though, Paul's admonition in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, where he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. It is vital that we assess whether we have, in fact, come to faith in Jesus Christ. Are you a Christian? Why do you think that you are a Christian? Is it simply because of your church attendance? Or maybe kids among us, is it because of your parents being Christians, your Christian heritage? That is not what being a Christian is all about. Being a Christian means fundamentally that you believe in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. God's gracious gospel begins with God, who is the creator of all things, who is holy, eternal, and infinitely perfect. God created you and me in his image, but we rebelled against 
God and sin entered the world. Human beings are sinners by nature and by choice. We are alienated from God and we are under his wrath. But God purposed from eternity to send his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. God incarnate, fully God, fully man. Jesus lived a sinless life and as our representative and substitute shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for sins. He arose bodily from the dead, ascended to heaven, and it is his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection that give us the only grounds for salvation. God then commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to God in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask, I ask you, have you done that? Have you turned to God in repentance and received the Lord Jesus Christ? The book of 1 John gives us three tests, perhaps we might call them, or ways to know that we have indeed received Jesus Christ. We might call them orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy. First, orthodoxy. This has to do with right beliefs, sound doctrine. 1 John 4 verse 15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Second, orthopraxy, that is right practices. This has to do with our actions and our behaviors, the way we live out our faith. 1 John 1, 6-7 says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And thirdly, orthopathy, that is having a right heart. This has to do more with our experiences as well as our emotions. And so it is vital that believers in Jesus Christ have experienced God's spirit. 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. 1 John 4, 7 through 8 then speaks of our love, speaks of right emotion. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. One of the passages in the Old Testament where we see these brought together, not only right experience of the Spirit, but also right emotion, is in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. It says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In our drive to get our beliefs right and to have our practices rightly reflect those beliefs, I fear sometimes what is jettisoned, sometimes what is not as present, is our orthopathy, that is, our right emotion, our love for one another. That flows from our love for God. And that is why I believe our ethos statement on humble orthodoxy is so right, is so spot on. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopathy. You might look at them as praise, practice, and passion. Three tests that we are given to know to when we to examine ourselves to see the, whether we are in the faith. And so I ask you to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Second takeaway 
is that we must engage potential disciples to see whether they too might come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is vital that we engage even those that uh, might be considered religious. They may have the external trappings of religion. They may attend worship services. They may even think that they are Christians, but often they cannot articulate the core tenet of the gospel and they show no evidence of the faith. Now, this may take some diagnosing, just like Paul did there in Ephesus. But when he realized that the 12 disciples of John the Baptist were not yet believers in Jesus Christ, what did he do? He proclaimed the gospel to them. They believed and received the Holy Spirit and were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Think about members of cults that might mix in elements of Christianity or those that may point to their spiritual heritage or those who simply attend church or feel like they are affiliated in some way, shape, or form. They may have some external form of religion but are not yet transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is vital that we take time to engage even those who may appear religious. Recognize that they are just as in need of a Savior. And remember that God changes all types of people and that his gospel can go anywhere. Our ethos statement on pervasive gospel captures this so well. We preach a gospel that can go anywhere and change anything from the depths of our own souls to the ends of the earth. Third, let us rely on the Spirit's presence, power, and persuasion. Let us rely on the Spirit's presence, power, and persuasion. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ in all that he does. He convicts the world of its guilt. He regenerates sinners. And in him we are baptized into union with Christ, and we become a part of the new family. We are adopted into the family of God. He does other work, though. He indwells, as we have said. He illuminates, he guides, he equips, and he empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. His immediacy and his fullness is what gives power to witness and to live out what we talked about, to live out orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy. So let us commit to engaging potential disciples who may appear religious, but are just as in need of the transforming power of the gospel. Second type, engaging potential disciples who are hostile. Engaging potential disciples who are hostile. Look at verses 8 and then the beginning of 9. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Paul picks up where he left off in Ephesus in the synagogue. And remember, he had said, I will return to you if God wills, trusting in God's sovereignty, trusting humbly, depending upon God. And sure enough, God brings him back to Ephesus and back into the synagogue. Ephesus was a cosmopolitan city. It had to have had a large and influential Jewish community. And so surprisingly, Paul is able to proclaim the gospel in the synagogue for three months. And this ministry of his is characterized by speaking boldly, by reasoning, and by persuading. Over and over again in Acts, we see Paul speaking boldly. And it's the same term that's used of Apollos speaking boldly in the synagogue. It means to express oneself freely, openly and fearlessly. 
Re reasoning has to do with exchanging, discussing, or dialoguing. It has to do with a back and forth or a question and answer. It is not just simply a talking head. And third, persuading means to convince or to cause someone to adopt a certain position, belief, or course of action. And so that is what Paul does here. And what, what is his message? It all boils down to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. From Luke's perspective, Paul's arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, and Apollos proving from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. This is one and the same. Paul preaches Jesus and the kingdom. To him, they are bound up together in the gospel of God. Acts 28, verse 31, the very last verse in Acts has Paul. It says, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. For Paul, the kingdom of God and Jesus, the Messiah, are all bound up together. And so after a period of time, some become stubborn continue in their disbelief and openly slander what is called the way. Stubborn. Let's think about, about that for a second. This is an expression that appears in the Old Testament regarding Pharaoh and the people in the wilderness. It has to do with a hard-heartedness. By continuing in their unbelief, they reject the one true way, the way, the truth, and the life. And in, instead, they speak evil of the way. By the way, that phrase the way is another way of referring to Christianity that appears earlier in the book of Acts. This is the way. This is what Paul openly persecuted, as he says in 20, chapter 22, verse 4. And now he is the greatest uh, advocate of the way, pioneer of the way, raising up disciples, raising up leaders, and planting churches. And so Paul withdraws from the synagogue. And yet, in the midst of this, there is a note of hope. It's, it's, the text says, and took the disciples with them. There were some, in fact, who had truly embraced faith in Jesus Christ and went with him. A couple takeaways to consider here. First is, let us reclaim the lost art of dialogue. Let us reclaim the lost art of dialogue. You know, our social media feeds can sometimes become echo chambers where all we hear are those that we agree with. Or all, all the news sources that we see too can become an echo chamber as well. If we are very selective in what we listen to or what we watch or what we take in, this can even bleed over into limiting our circles of friendships and relationships with those that we may agree with. But dear church, there is a need. There is a need for reclaiming the lost art of dialogue. That is the exchange of ideas. And rather than attacking individuals, exchanging ideas. Instead, we, there is a need for what, what we might call Christ-like dialogue. And the church has the opportunity, churches like ours, has the opportunity to model what this dialogue looks like for an increasingly polarized country. The church has the opportunity to model such Christ-like dialogue. Second takeaway is persevere knowing that some will accept and others will reject the gospel. But it is not ultimately up to us. Yes, we will encounter hard-heartedness, persistence and unbelief, and even, some, even open slandering. And yet this word some, I think, is, is worth noting. 
when you're in the thick of it, it's tempting to think that everyone is against you. The reality is that only some rejected the gospel, while others accepted it, and it is not ultimately up to us. We know from other letters, though, that Paul suffered greatly while he was in Ephesus. He fought for his life there, as 1 Corinthians 15 mentions. He faced trouble and despair, 2 Corinthians 1, possibly even imprisonment. Later, we discover in Acts 21 that some Jews from the province of Asia are the ones that provoked the mob against Paul in Jerusalem, of all places. And yet, in the midst of all of this, he kept at it. He persevered through the midst of that. When it became obvious, though, that some would not believe, he withdrew in keeping with what Jesus taught in Matthew 7 and Luke 9. But as we will see, he didn't go very far. And there were Jews who continued to believe even after this transition. And so here's the third type of potential disciples we're looking at here this morning. The third type is engaging potential disciples who are curious. Engaging potential disciples who are curious. Look at the rest of verse 9 and then verse 10 as well. Picking up, actually, let's just read all of verse 9 and 10. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Amazing. Paul takes some of the new disciples here and sets up shop in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. I wish we knew more about this particular setting, but some of the things that we do know is that this, ha- this was most likely a public space where Paul could engage with all sorts of people on a regular basis. Tyrannus would have been the lecturer who regularly taught there. And Tyrannus actually means tyrant. It makes you wonder, did his parents name him that? Or did his students give him that nickname? I can think of teachers I've had in the past that we gave nicknames along those lines, but he could have either been the lecturer who regularly taught there, or if he was the owner of the building, it would have been more of like a guild hall. His name, though, has been found on on inscriptions in Ephesus dating to this time. And the Western text tradition has Paul teaching there between the hours of 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. This was the hottest part of the day where people would regularly take breaks from their work to engage in rest and to and maybe take a nap. So Paul met at these off-peak times, but also times when people were available. He most likely continued to do his tent making, as we see earlier in Acts 18. In the morning, he would have worked hard, and then in the afternoon taught, taught tirelessly. And so he made a significant impact on Ephesus and also the valley surrounding it, and actually an impact that reached to the entire Roman province of Asia. As people came through Ephesus, they heard the gospel proclaimed, and then they took that gospel to their own households, wherever they lived. The word of the Lord is another way of saying the gospel, the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel continued to cross ethnic barriers as both Jews and Greeks heard the gospel, responded to it, and then joined this beautiful new multi-ethnic community of disciples. Most likely when the churches were planted uh, there, the churches that were planted during this time would have been some that received the letters that were recorded in Revelation 2 and 3. And workers like Epaphras were most likely raised up during this same time as well. 
workers that would expand the church in Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and beyond. This, this adopted family of God, this beautiful multi-ethnic community of disciples would continue to grow and to expand as disciples were made laborers raised up and commissioned and sent out and churches planted ultimately for the glory of God. Church, I can't help but think about where our own church is located, right next to Northwestern University. God is increasingly bringing the nations to us. There is a key opportunity before us as people come through, just as they came through Ephesus, as people come through Northwestern, as they come through Evanston, as they come through the greater Chicago area, there is a key opportunity to share the life-giving message of the gospel so that the world might know as people take the gospel back then to wherever they may go next. I admit, ministering to Northwestern University in this time is going to take some creative thinking, but I am sure that there are some good ideas even among us as a church as to ways that we can do exactly that in this difficult time. But I do, I do want to pose a question for us here as we come to a close, and that question is, what could a lecture hall of Tyrannus type ministry look like? for EBF. I want you to dream with me. I want you to pray along these same lines. I want you to, to think of creative ideas. What might a lecture hall of Tyrannus type ministry look like for EBF? All ideas are welcome. It is vital that we make good use of the time that God has given us. I am inspired and awestruck by how Paul labored in the morning and then taught tirelessly in the afternoon. It is vital, too, that we see the gospel continue to cross racial, social, economic, ethnic, all barriers that you can think of as this beautiful family of God is continued, continues to grow. And also, my heart for us as a church is that we might multiply disciple makers, that we might see leaders and co-laborers, co-workers, fellow soldiers raised up and sent out wherever God calls them and that we might see more churches planted for the glory of God. Church, would you join me in praying for our elders, our staff, our leadership, as we engage in a key time of asking God to show us His wisdom, His direction, His vision for us as a church. And I so look forward to that journey ahead as He calls us to what is next, the next hill, and the next hill, and the next hill. In the meantime, though, praise God that the gospel can go anywhere and change anyone, from religious types to hostile types and to curious types as well. And here is simply the bottom, the bottom line. We need spirit-empowered disciple-makers who display orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy to engage all people with the gospel, regardless of their setting, regardless of their perceived receptivity, and regardless, regardless of their ethnic background, all for the glory of God, till the church is built and the earth is filled with his glory. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you so thankful for your life-giving word. We are grateful for the work of your spirit in our lives. We pray that you would use the people of God, the Word of God, and the Spirit of God to propel us forward, 
to use us in proclaiming, practicing, and living out passionately your gospel. And Father, would you use us in whatever setting you place us, be it in our schools, in the marketplace, in our, in our work, in public spaces. God, would you use us uh, regardless uh, as, we, as we engage with people. God, would you use us to reach those that may come from a wide variety of backgrounds. God, would you use us to proclaim the gospel among various types of people, whether they be religious, whether they be hostile to you, whether they be curious, God. We ask that you would empower us, that you would equip us, and you would propel us forward in the mission that you have given us. Father, would you find us faithful to this task, and would you go before us, preparing hearts as the seed of the gospel is planted. Oh, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.